Hello and welcome everybody, this is Dr. Tully for History 302. Today we're talking about the Civil Rights Movement and pop culture, so I'll give you a second to uh, grab your PowerPoint and we'll begin. <clears throat> so as you can tell from the first slide, uh, this is from 1954-ish to 1969-ish. Uh, the ish is quite important because these are kind of rough things. I mean, the Civil Rights Movement, it certainly doesn't end in 1969 and it certainly doesn't begin in 1954. Uh, so this is kind of a rough thing we're talking about here. So just kind of a general time period, mainly focusing between these years, though. So if you go for one slide, we'll begin. Now, the origins of the Civil Rights Movement, um, if we're talking about the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s, uh, you know, the classic Civil Rights Movement, you know, Dr. King, all of them, um, it is important to iterate that this is not a new development by any chance in American history. It's been going on for hundreds of years by the time we get to the 60s. Um, a lot of different trends that kind of come together. One thing you do need to think about, though, uh, just like television, there's a very generally uh, a good economy in this time period. Uh, the good economy and this idea of American optimism, it's a huge part of the genesis of the civil rights movement. Uh, typically, oppression goes up in times of economic duress or financial duress, and people are more willing to talk about rights when things seem, quote-unquote, good. Uh, generally, whenever there's a pinch on finances, uh, that's when oppression tends to go up. However, with the Civil Rights Movement, one of the main reasons why the country, well, a lot of people was willing to listen uh, during this time period was because the economy was pretty good. Uh, that being said, though, I, as I alluded to earlier, I cannot iterate this uh, strong enough. Uh, it does not generate in the 1950s itself. Uh, many people have been working for years, decades, hundreds of years even, to lay the groundwork. Uh, the NAACP and other civil rights organizations, uh, like CORE, that's Congress for Racial Equality, have been around by decades for this time. Likewise, individuals like A. Philip Randolph, who we're going to talk about in a little bit, he's been working for decades to get this done. So um, I'm not sure how you were taught about the civil rights movement, but it wasn't just like, hey, slavery is over, and then we're going to wait 100 years before the civil rights movement happens. Um, large undercurrent going on in all these in, in all these instances. Now, the most immediate uh, predecessor to the Civil Rights Movement, though, I mean, even though it's a very long process, the most immediate one was the Double V Campaign in World War II. Uh, the Double V Campaign was a campaign during World War II kind of to promote this idea of patriotism within African Americans. Um, this idea that basically um, African Americans are going to show the rest of, you know, white America, mainstream America, whatever you want to call it, that they were good Americans by really supporting the war effort, being very patriotic. <clears throat> they did things like, uh, they, they had like war bond drives and scrap metal drives, but also uh, really hoping and iterating that African Americans should become combat troops. This idea that, you know, you're going to show how much you love America by fighting for it, and also use World War II and the country's general interest in the war to really promote civil rights. As I mentioned before, it directly petitioned the federal government, and it also tries very hard to remain respectable, not radical. Um, whenever you're talking about the civil rights movement, you're talking a lot about respectability, which we're going to get into for quite a while. But this idea that the Double V campaign actually had a great deal of success because they tried to show that their petitions for civil rights weren't going to radically change the country. It's kind of a technique, uh, just in any sort of negotiation. If you convince the other party that you've done that they've done something before, they're more inclined to do it again. It's the idea that basically you're saying, "Hey, we're not arguing for anything overly radical. We're arguing for something that we've theoretically already had, 
which is something you see in the civil rights movement. Um, there were further results, uh, further things that do happen in this time period. Um, another, uh, another result of the Double V campaign was in the Korean War. It's actually during the Korean War that the U.S. military has desegregated units for the first time. So for the first time, you have black and white soldiers uh, serving together in the same units, in desegregated units. Now, another thing which cannot be ignored, and I cannot iterate this enough, you cannot ignore or overlook this, is the Cold War. Uh, the Civil Rights Movement is very tied to the Cold War. Uh, you cannot divorce the two whatsoever. Um, you might have been taught the Cold War and Civil Rights were separate, but they weren't. They were, they were going on the same time period, and there's a lot of overlap. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the Cold War, the Cold War is a kind of the period after World War II wherever the United States and Russia were in very serious contention with each other. Um, very little actual fighting of each other. I mean, there were proxy wars with places like Korea and Vietnam. Uh, by and large, it was done for like the hearts and minds of the recently decolonized countries. So basically, the United States was trying to convince Latin America, African, and Asian countries to favor them over the USSR. And a very common critique, I mean, if you look at the anti-American Soviet propaganda during this time period, one of the most common critiques of the United States was that how could it truly be free when, like, a sizable portion of its citizens don't have equal rights? Uh, likewise, uh, a very, very powerful tool the Soviets had in their arsenal whenever they're talking to, like, an African or Asian country, particularly African countries, is, like, why should a country of brown people trust the United States when brown people in the United States are treated very, very, very poorly? And like I said, this is a very, very common Super common criticism of the United States during the Cold War. Very common in anti, and sorry, anti-American Soviet propaganda. But like everything else, there is a complication in it. It's a very interesting complication because the most common criticism of the civil rights movement. Uh, if you look at the people who are writing against the civil rights movement, whatever you want to call it, uh, this is weirdly common in American history once communism comes around. But it's like, basically, you see a lot of criticism of the civil rights movement and its leadership as being part of a quote-unquote communist, uh, communist plot. It's the idea that all the civil rights leaders, all the civil rights movement, is nothing but a bunch of communists trying to, you know, overthrow the country, trying to, you know, be un-American, whatever you want to call it. Uh, this idea comes from a couple places. Uh, for instance, uh, anything anti-American was viewed as communist. That, that, that is something that's been around for, God, even before the Cold War. Actually, ironically, even before the Soviet Union ever went to communist, even, after the, even before the Russian Revolution, uh, the United States viewed communism as something f deeply anti-American. That, that's a very common idea within the United States. Uh, it is also true that some of the civil rights leaders are left to center, and a few actually do have socialist ties. Uh, mainly they are left of center just by the nature of uh, politics. They were generally left of nature, uh, left of center. Also, there were some old actions done by the Communist Party to help black people, uh, most famously the Scottsboro Boys. That was a case where basically a bunch of black youths were accused of raping white girls, and um, whenever no lawyer came for them, the, the Communist Party, uh, the Communist Party of the United States, provided them legal representation. And basically it's this idea that the communists are trying to, you know, placate race relations. Uh, that is actually a thing. You actually have this in the Great Depression uh, beforehand, wherever the Communist Party is trying to make inroads with African Americans. 
it never really goes over too well. That said, though, a very few, and I cannot iterate how few, but a very few members of the civil rights movement do have some communist ties, uh, most notably Bayard Rustin, who we're going to talk about in just a second. He's not a major spokesperson by any means, but he is a major organizer behind the scenes. We'll talk about Rustin in just a second when we talk about uh, this idea of respectability. Now, when we talk about the civil rights movement, uh, traditionally the, the traditional beginning of the civil rights movement, the, you know, the historical whatever you want to call it, is Brown versus the Board of Education, 1954. Uh, 1954, it's seen as the uh, beginning of the civil rights movement, the beginning of the modern civil rights movement. Um, it's, a, it's a case that was highly targeted by the NAACP. This is very much a test case. Uh, Brown, uh, basically it's Brown is the name of the plaintiff. Basically, it's, he's a man with a daughter. Uh, he is a welder and a part-time pastor. He was seen as an ideal plaintiff because he had a respectable figure, and his case was pretty open and shut. Uh, basically, his daughter had to ride, his school, had to ride the school bus uh, quite far away from her house, wherever there was a perfectly good white school just a few blocks away. However, she had to ride the bus for quite a while before she could get to her school. Uh, this was a test case. It was later became a class action case. It was done in Topeka, Kansas, by the way. Uh, Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. Uh, this goes all the way to the Supreme Court. This goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And um, the Supreme Court actually goes against case law on this. Uh, case law is basically uh, legal precedent, which uh, had been decided by the case of Plessy versus Ferguson, which you're probably familiar with. Uh, Plessy v. Ferguson says that uh, you know segregation is okay. Uh, the first Brown decision says that uh, separate but equal is unconstitutional, basically striking down segregation. But there's a problem, because there's only one... Uh, the first decision says, hey, segregation is illegal, we need to get rid of it. It doesn't say when segregation should be removed, it doesn't give a time frame. So a year later, in 55, there's a second decision, uh, Brown v. Board 2, which gives one of the most um, infuriating answers ever. Uh, basically, whenever the Supreme Court is asked when should desegregation occur, it states, with all deliberate speed. Now, the problem with all deliberate speed is that it can mean whatever you want. It's not a set date. Uh, for instance, if, you know, let's say right now you're like, oh, I want to ask out that cute girl in my pop culture class, and you ask her out, and she agrees, and you're like, sweet, when are we going out? And she says, with all deliberate speed. And you're like, okay, is that Friday or Saturday? And she's like, with all deliberate speed. After a while, you might get annoyed, because uh, nobody has any idea what that means. And that's kind of the problem with Brown v. Board of Education, with both decisions, is that although it says segregation needs to go away, it doesn't give a timeline. It doesn't really give next steps. What does happen with, with, with the first uh, steps for desegregation is a huge backlash. Uh, unlike the Double V campaign, which was fairly well accepted, you know, I mean, nobody really over... Nobody was up in arms about the Double V campaign. Uh, there was immediate, harsh backlash to school integration. And it showed that getting state and local governments is going to take a lot more time than the federal government. Uh, a lot of state and local governments come up with very creative ways to keep segregation going on. And basically, it showed that, hey, it might be one thing to get a civil rights decision in the Supreme Court, but actually getting the hearts and minds of individuals is going to be longer and be a much more emotional campaign. 
And that's kind of the reorganization they go through. You know, the civil rights movement leaders, they realize, you know, court cases are fairly easy to do. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy to get a case to the Supreme Court. It's not. But just because you get a law changed, getting people to follow it can be a lot harder. I mean, for instance, you know, sharing your Netflix password is theoretically illegal, but you do it. (laughs) Getting the speed limit, that's a better example. You know, going faster, sorry, squeaky... The speed limit is illegal, but you do it. Getting people to comply is harder to do, and that's what they find with Brown v. Board. They realize we can't just appeal to the Supreme Court and expect change to happen throughout society. We have to regroup. That's where you get into the modern civil rights movement. Now, as mentioned earlier, if there is one word that defines the early civil rights movement, it's respectability. Uh, respectability is steeped all throughout the civil rights movement. Um, whenever we discuss, I would definitely expect you to talk about this idea of respectability, what it actually means. Um, participants in the civil rights movement were usually expected to wear their Sunday best, uh, not respond with violence, and beware of all elements of their public persona. If you look at the early civil rights movement, if you look at the marches, you know, they're wearing coats and ties. They're wearing, you know, dresses. Um, th- this wasn't just because everybody dressed like that back then. Like, they, people wore, you know, T-shirts and shorts and stuff back then, too, or jeans. But it's this idea that, you know, you don't want to look bad. Uh, not respond with violence. Basically, they, they, they tell the people participating, look, if one of you responds with violence, it's going to look bad on the entire movement. Um, you know, that's the one who's going to get media attention. Making aware of all elements of their public persona. Very idea with this idea of clean. And the, basically, the, the public perception was really key among this. You know, by making those who support the civil rights movement be viewed as respectable, those who opposed it could be seen as disrespectful and therefore bigots, if that makes sense. It's basically where it's like, look, we want to make it so that if you oppose us, it literally has to be because of the color of our skin. Because there's nothing else you could say about, about about us. You know, it's not because we're not clean. It's not because we're not neat. Uh, they're very big on, like, you know, trying to get people who are, you know, have jobs and things like that to be the real spokespeople of the civil rights movement. It's also fairly evident that uh, because public perception is key, media and how the civil rights movement is seen and whole is become the biggest weapons to hearts and minds. Remember, this battle of the civil rights movement is not about theoretically legislation. It's more about changing people's minds, basically changing the perceptions of African Americans. And because of this, it really shouldn't come with any surprise that most of the early civil rights movement leaders are pastors. Um, they check so many of the boxes. I mean, think about it. Like, if you were trying to figure out who is the best phase of our movement? Like, what sort of characteristics are, do the pastors, do these people include? You can't do better than a pastor. Uh, think about it. These pastors are educated. You know, you're, if you're trying to combat negative stereotypes, pastors are educated. Uh, they are Christian, uh, therefore theoretically incapable of being a communist. Remember when we talked earlier about the 50s, this idea that if you're a good uh, American, you have to be a Christian because if you're communist, you can't be a Christian, theoretically speaking, this concept as well and also well-established into communities. Uh, pastors are very well-established into the communities. They have their flock there. Uh, in the African-American community, church is uh, it's more than just a worship place. It's, it can be a lot of different things, uh, mainly throughout African-American history. 
It's a lot of different elements that kind of come together. And churches really act as more than just a worship place. It could be a community center. Uh, it's a place for jobs. All these things kind of come together. And pastors are deeply ingrained in the community. And because of this, it truly no, come as no surprise if you go over one slide, that somebody like Dr. King becomes a purposeful choice of the civil rights movement. I mean, Dr. King, he's never the one leader, all right? Never think that. He'll be the first to tell you that he's not the, you know, he's not the only leader. There's a lot of other pastors around. He's just the main spokesperson of something like the Southern Christian Leadership Council, the SCLC. Um, because he is young, when he, when, he, when he starts out, he is about in his early 30s. I think he's like 30 years old whenever he first comes to national attention. Uh, he is young. He Actually, he's younger than that because the Montgomery stuff, he's actually in his late 20s. Um, young, good-looking, educated, excellent speaker, married, has kids. So pretty much if you hate Dr. King, it has to be because of his race, if that makes sense. Like, that's why they pick him as a spokesperson, and not somebody, if you go over one more slide, like Bayard Rustin. Uh, Bayard Rustin, if you see right there, there he is. Uh, there he is uh, uh, on the left. Here he is with Dr. King on the right. Uh, he is a main organizer of the civil rights movement. He's primarily one of the uh, main leaders of the civil rights movement when it comes to organization. Now, when it comes to organizing, uh, Rustin is very hard to beat. Um, very, very, very hard to beat when it comes to organizing. Uh, for instance, the March on Washington, that's, that's, that's kind of one of his baby projects. It's one of his pet projects. He, he really helps organize it organizes a lot of the sit-ins, does a lot of the logistics. However, you will never see him as a spokesperson. Um, you will never see him as a, like, a real thing that they really highlight in the movement, mainly because he does not fit the definition of respectable in the 60s. Uh, what's, what's, what's Rustin's thing? Well, he has two major strikes against him for the time period. Uh, number one, he is a former member of the Communist Party. Uh, when he was a younger man, he, he starts out in the Communist Party. Um, he, he leaves it after a while. He claims it wasn't that great, he, he, but he, he claims he gets organizing ideas from them. Uh, still, you know, whenever the movement is often criticized as being you know, anti-American, the idea that you know, your head spokesperson is a former member of the Communist Party, that can be something that is seen as a, not a good if you're really going for a respectable time period. Uh, the other strike he has against him, he is a homosexual. He is a homosexual in the 60s. Not only that, his lover is a much younger white man. Um, interracial gay relationship was not viewed as respectable whatsoever in the 60s, uh, 50s and 60s. And if Rustin had been kind of promoted to the head of the movement... Uh, that would have come out even more, and basically it's a way to disregard the entire movement because of the actions of one individual. So basically, Rustin, you know, he works really hard, he does a lot of organizing, comes up with a lot of great ideas, but when it comes to the movement, putting somebody like Dr. King at the head was seen as a better move because Dr. King was a much more respectable person in the 1950s and 60s. Dr. King is the purposeful choice of the Southern Christian Leadership Council to be it. This is also reflected in the music that surrounds the early civil rights movement. If you go over one slide, you will see uh, a lot of the early music of the civil rights movement, which is either hymns repurposed for the movement or new songs that sound a lot like hymns. 
Uh, really important to note that the songs don't create the movement, rather the movement created the songs. It wasn't like, oh, we, you know, we have all these great songs that are like played in church and we're going to make a movement out of it. Uh, they really try to repurpose hymn-sounding songs or write songs that sound like hymns. Uh, stuff like We Shall Overcome or We Shall Not Be Moved uh, and others really only come after the genesis of the, uh, genesis of the movement. But they're kind of tapping into something older, tapping into this idea that it's almost like a hymn, it's a religious thing, it's theoretically respectable. You have singers like Mavis Staples, who's actually still alive. Mavis Staples is still alive. Uh, the Staples singers is kind of her thing. Her dad was like a big-time church singer. She becomes a civil rights singer fairly early on, does a lot of different songs in this vein. Uh, you know, she comes from a religious background. Her religion informs her civil rightsness, and basically she is highlighted as a singer in this movement because she is somebody deemed respectable. Another one, if you go over one slide, is Joan Baez. If you click the YouTube link, uh, you're going to hear Joan Baez do We Shall Overcome. Uh, we Shall Overcome is done almost like a hymn. It, it's a new song, but it's theoretically done in hymn style, uh, seen as a very respectable thing. As, as you look with both Joan Baez and uh, Mavis Staples, uh, they, they were you know, dressed very very clean, very neat. I guess Joan Baez was a little bit more scandalous because she wore uh, didn't wear dresses all the time. But very much done as like, hey, this is the face we're looking for for the movement, this kind of idea. Also, you have songs like This Little Lie to Mine, Eyes on the Prize. Those are hymns. Those are actually old hymns and spirituals, which get repurposed for the civil rights movement. Now, this idea of respectability is all over the place. And I could go on and on about respectability. If you want to know more about that, take my African-American history course. But respectability is seen immensely in things like the... Uh, Little Rock Nine at Central High School, or the Montgomery Bus Boycott. This idea that for African Americans to be accepted as full members of American society, they had to show that the Civil Rights Movement was inherently respectable. And here's the thing, it's not just in the Civil Rights Movement where you have African Americans fighting for this idea of respectability. Because in the midst of the Civil Rights Movement, a young man from Detroit, Michigan, is about to make the biggest splash in U.S. history for black music. If you go over one slide, you will see Mr. Barry Gordy Jr. Uh, Barry Gordy is a very fascinating character. Uh, I wrote a book about Barry Gordy, and so you will hear me talk about Barry Gordy quite a bit. Um, Gordy is a fascinating individual, one of the most impactful um, individuals when it comes to African-American music. Actually, just music in general, uh, regardless of genre, Barry Gordy is very much seen as a very key figure. Now, a little bit about Barry Gordy's background. Uh, Barry Bo Gordy's background. Uh, he is born in 1929 from Detroit, uh, in Detroit, Michigan. Um, he's still alive, actually. He's still alive. He's in his 90s now. But um, you know, Barry Gordy, he's still alive, still kicking. Um, he did his uh, Motown anniversary concert last year, where he theoretically retired from music, which we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, but like a lot of African-Americans in Detroit, he is a product of the Great Migration. Um, his family, his dad, uh, came from the South. They came from Georgia during the Great Migration. Um, his dad was a farmer in Georgia. Actually, his dad was pretty interesting. Uh, Barry Gordy Sr., who's actually theoretically Barry Gordy Jr. Barry Gordy, as we know him, was Barry Gordy III, but he always got called Barry Gordy Jr., it's complicated. We're just going to call him Barry Gordy. Anyway, the guy who made Motown's dad, he was a farmer in Georgia who actually owned property. Uh, he was unique in the time period that he was a black man who owned property. He owned his own farm in Detroit. 
not in Detroit, sorry, in Georgia before they came to Detroit. Uh, the reason they left for Detroit was actually the local clan um, got wind of the fact that basically there was a black man with property and they started harassing the Gordys. And that's why Gordy's parents decided to move to Detroit. Um, now, Gordy himself, actually, unlike a lot of people in the Great Migration, he comes from a fairly working-to-middle-class background. Actually has a fairly middle-class backing. Um, his dad, it was a source of pride for uh, Barry Gordy Sr. to not work in the car industry. Uh, unlike most African-Americans who came up to Detroit for jobs, uh, they were like manufacturing jobs, uh, the Gordys were very proud to be business owners of their own. Um, his dad was very proud not to work in the car industry. Um, he actually owned his own plastering business, uh, basically wall plastering. Before you have drywall, this is how you like put walls into houses. And basically his dad sold the land that he had in, in Georgia when he moved to Detroit, started up his own business. And actually Barry Gordy comes in with a fairly middle-classy background that his parents really try to iterate. His parents own a number of businesses other than the plastering business. That's just the main one. They have a grocery store for a while. Very much in that kind of Booker T. Washington, you know, work from the bottom, even though the Gordys are starting out actually kind of in the middle. And his parents really tried to instill a very strong work ethic. This idea that, you know, you really need to work hard, be your own man. Uh, that is not what Gordy wanted to do, however. Uh... Barry Gordy was not too interested in fulfilling his parents' expectations. Instead, he's really interested in boxing. He is fascinated with boxing. In particular, uh, Joe Lewis. Uh, Joe Lewis, uh, the Brown Bomber, they called him. He was from Detroit. Theoretically, he's another great migration guy. Uh, comes from the drugs of Detroit, uh, You know, beats up white boxers, becomes a heavyweight champ of the world. Basically, Gordy is fascinated by Joe Lewis. He's like, this is the guy I want to be like. Um... Basically, Gordy pretty much drops out of school and becomes a boxer. If you go over one slide, you'll see uh, Barry Gordy boxing. Uh, th that's a picture of him as a boxer. Uh, that was hard for me to find, but uh, there are, basically, he was a boxer for a while, and he has a respectable record. Um, he has a respectable record. Probably the highlight of uh, Barry Gordy's life is he actually gets to fight on the same bill as Joe Lewis once. He doesn't fight Joe Lewis, but you know how, like, boxing has cards or, like, UFC has cards. The, the underfights, uh, basically, in one of the underfights, uh, Barry Gordy got to box somebody. Uh, while boxing, he meets a man by the name of Jackie Wilson. Just kind of put that away. That's yeah, going to become very important later on. Uh, Jackie Wilson, um, kind of energetic guy as a fighter, much more charismatic guy than Gordy. Uh, Gordy was a respectable fighter, but he was never really good enough to make it big, if that makes sense. Like, um, he fought at a fairly low weight class, fairly, fairly small guy. He wasn't a heavyweight or anything. And he was good, but not great when it came to boxing. And uh, it wasn't too surprising when he got drafted. Uh, he gets drafted. He actually goes over to Korea. He serves in the Korean War for a while. Uh, gets a very plum job. He is the driver or an assistant for a... Well, he's, a, he's an assistant for a chaplain, which basically means he drives. He basically drives chaplains around. He's never actually near the front whatsoever. Yeah, he, doesn't really get near the front. He doesn't really fire a gun or anything. Uh, gets his discharge later on. He actually does serve an integrated unit, which is interesting. Uh, when he comes back, uh, he he you know he you know, he he serves and he gets he gets discharged, and he dreams of opening up his own record store. That's the main thing he wants to do. He's like, you know what? While he's in Korea, he's imagining here's what it's going to be like whenever I open up my own record store. 
and he wants to sell jazz music. Jazz is his favorite type of music. Um, he, he, you know, he, he loves jazz music, even though it's not the most popular, doesn't sell the most. That's what he wants to sell. So when he gets back from De- uh, when he gets back to Detroit from Korea, he opens up the 3D Record Mart. It's called the 3D Record Mart. It sold jazz records, and it fails spectacularly. It fails very quickly, very, uh, very, very, very quickly, and um, he he kind of falls apart. He's stuck with a lot of debt. He's stuck with a lot of expenses because he's gotten married. He's got a couple children. If you go over two slides, when he gets to point D. Uh, he takes a job at the one place where he never wanted to work, the place that was a source of pride where he, you know, where his parents or his family didn't work, and that's in the car industry. Uh, he takes a job at a pressing plant, which basically presses. It's very menial work. It's very boring work, very repetitive work. It's quite boring. Works on an assembly line. He hates it, but he's working. And while he's on the assembly line, they kind of pass the time. Like, I don't know if you've ever worked a boring job. I'm sure you have. I've worked some boring jobs in my time. And one thing you do is you kind of make things up to make the time go faster. And that's what Gordy does. He's not a classically cha- trained uh, musician by any sense. He doesn't know anything about, like, you know, music theory or how to play music. But he starts kind of, like, making little ditties in his head. He starts making up little tunes in his head, uh, little songs, just kind of pass the time away. And as time goes on, he's like, you know what? Maybe I could do something about this. Maybe I could start writing songs. You know, like I said, he doesn't know anything about like writing music. He doesn't know anything about like, you know, music theory, like how to you know turn tunes into notes. But he's like, you know, maybe I can do something. So as he would do often in his career, he decides to lean upon his family, because he has two sisters. He has multiple siblings. He has there are so many Gordy siblings. It's not even funny. I can't even keep them straight, and I like do this professionally. But two of his sisters are working at a nightclub as cigarette girls. Uh, basically, they sell cigarettes. They have like a little stand where they sell cigarettes to people at the nightclub. And he leans upon them to introduce them to the acts that come in. Basically, he becomes convinced that he can become a songwriter. He's like, look, hey, sisters, um, I know you're at this club. Eventually, like, you know, stars come in. Just get me in the door. If, you know, if, you know, if some famous person comes up to you for cigarettes, tell them, hey, my brother writes music. He, he wants to write a song for you. Uh, particularly, he wants to do that for Billie Holiday. He, he is obsessed with Billie Holiday as a jazz singer. He's like, I can do this. Now, it, it, this is where it gets kind of a series of very nice coincidences kind of come together. And um, basically, while he's doing this, he happens to run into his old friend Jackie Wilson, uh, the, uh, the guy that he knew as a boxer. Uh, Jackie Wilson, this time period, has become a singer. He's now become a singer, and basically he knows Barry from their boxing days. And basically, um, he tells Jackie Wilson, hey, you should, in fact, if you go over one side, you'll see Jackie Wilson, uh, you, should, you should sing a song that I write. You should sing that a song I write. And, um, you know, if you sing the songs I write, we're going to make some hits out of that. And basically, Jackie Wilson's like, you know what? Why not? Why not? You know, I'm, I'm kind of getting my start. Um, it's, always, it's always important to find good music to listen to. So, you know what? That's fine. I don't care. We'll go for it. You, we do this. Uh, Jackie Wilson doesn't really expect too much. Uh, the first song that he writes for, uh, that Barry Gordy ends up writing for Jackie Wilson, though, is actually a pretty decent hit. If you go over one side, you'll see Reet Petite. Reet Petite. Um, yeah, I'd actually encourage you to listen to the little clip right there. Just play it. Now, sadly, they didn't have music videos in this time period, and Jackie Wilson was known as Mr. Excitement. 
uh, known for his live performances. There aren't too many of his live performances that were recorded, sadly, from that time period. If you ever find one, I'd love to see it. Uh, this kind of gets uh, Gordy into like this, uh, it's a minor hit, Rip Petit is. Basically makes uh, people take Gordy a little bit more seriously. Take it a little bit more seriously. Uh, now, uh, meanwhile, one of uh, Gordy's sisters has become affiliated with Chess Records. Uh, that's Gwen Gordy, who related marries Harvey Fuqua. And then Barry leans upon her to help uh, basically give these songs that he's writing to a record label. And early on, if you keep going, you, you find that he realizes that, you know what, um, there's middling success to be fine writing songs for another record label. Um, he, he, he becomes a little bit frustrated that, like, you know, he's selling songs to Chess, and they're recording them in ways that he, he didn't want to do it. Also, he's not exactly happy about the amount of money he's getting from it, so he's like, you know what, I'm going to make my own record label. He wants to control more parts of production, but also to make more money. Uh, decides to make uh, Tamla Records, which later has its name changed to Motown. I'm not going to get into all the subsidiaries of Motown. That's where it gets too complicated. But just know, in 1959, he makes Motown. In 1959, he makes Motown. Uh, the first big hit that Motown has is the song Money. That's what I want. A uh, bit on the nose with its content. We're pretty much uh, the song, which you may be familiar with. It's this idea that you know, he wants money. That's all about. It's all it's about. It's, it's money. You know, love doesn't matter. Just pay me money. Um, kind of on the nose for Gordy to do that, but there you go. This song is the biggest hit for early Motown. This is pretty much the one that puts Motown on the map. Basically, makes Barry Gordy enough money that he could really start the record label. Um, it actually even gets covered by the Beatles later on. It's more of a rock and roll than traditional Motown, but it's a very, very big song. If you see the YouTube clip right there, you can watch it. And this inspires him to make the, the record label. And he opens up his own studios in a middle-class neighborhood, middle-class black neighborhood, I should say, in Detroit. Uh, this is the famous Hitsville USA studio. If you go over one slide, you will see him. There he is in front of Hitsville. Um, and he's very insistent about this Hitsville. If you go over one slide, actually, there's a lot of fun pictures of Hit, Hitsville. Uh, there he is holding a Supremes record in front of it. Uh, probably my favorite record is this, this favorite, sorry, my favorite picture is this third one, where it shows, sorry, it's squeaky, it shows Gordy with a guitar, Gordy has no idea how to play a guitar, uh, basically this idea that, you know what, Motown is going to be this very middle class, respectable, you know, good clean kids from Detroit, hanging out on the front lawn, and that's how we're going to discover hit records. I mean, that's the big thing about Barry Gordy. It's a, it, and it's the crossover it has with civil rights is this idea of respectability. Because the big thing that Gordy is insistent upon, super insistent upon, is one thing and one thing only, hit records. That's what Gordy wants, is hit records. He doesn't really care about anything else. He wants hit records. He wants mainstream hits. He wants crossover. Uh, why that's the case, uh, a lot of different reasons. A lot of different reasons why that is. Uh, part of it is financial. Basically, like, Motown simply did not have the resources of much larger record labels, so he literally could not afford for a song not to be a hit. Like, literally could not afford it. He would go broke. But, um... That, I mean, he, he could not afford for it to not be a hit. And so he becomes very meticulous, very has a lot of control over it, really uh, really hitting upon that. 
Um, the first number one hit that, that Motown ever gets, the first one that it gets as an independent record label, remember uh, Money, that's what I went was actually done for Chess Records, is Shop Around, done by Smokey Robertson and the Miracles. If you go over one slide, there's Smokey Robertson and the Miracles. They were originally called the, the Matadors. They are just called the Matadors. He, Barry Gordy, you know, uh, does executive control, uh, changes their name to the Miracles, and says, Smokey Robertson, you're the, you're the big one, you're the, you're the star of this now. First of many, also, uh, Robertson becomes a creative force. At the time, Smokey Robertson is a kid. Like, Smokey Robertson is young at this time period. He's just out of high school. Uh, Barry Gordy's in his late 20s. Barry, um, uh, Smokey Robertson's about 19. And Motown kind of becomes like a mecca for creative black people in New York, uh, sorry, in Detroit. Uh, very much cultivates a family atmosphere. A lot of Motown was very much based upon this idea of it's a family. You know, he, you know, his, his, all, pretty much every Gordy sibling works there. Every Gordy sibling works there in some form or fashion. Um, his dad even serves as janitor. Barry Gordy's dad even acts as janitor for Motown. Kind of like mascot. Like, you know, he sweeps around a little bit, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's done in a house. It's, it's not in a office. It's a house. Um, he hired a woman to, like, cook meals for them. Like, basically, like, there, you know, this whole family atmosphere. And tons of people join Motown and get big. Like, pretty much Detroit was an untapped talent market. You have a lot of African Americans who live there. Their parents are great migration people, just like Gordy. And there's a lot of talent that's kind of overlooked by the, you know, the executives, even in a place like Chicago. Chicago even had more record labels. But Detroit was overlooked, and pretty much Barry Gordy is tapping into like all the black talent in Motown. Sorry, in Detroit. And a lot of times the talent literally just comes to his front door. I mean, this idea that they had open auditions at, at, uh, at Hitsville, so like, you know, the high school students could kind of like come after school and do things. A lot of groups come in very quick order. Uh, for instance, you have, uh, you have the Temptations. If you go to the slide there, you see the Temptations. Uh, Stevie Wonder, that's a pretty good one. He's only 11 when he gets signed. Like, little Stevie Wonder, he's caught at the time period. Stevie is very young, very young. Uh, another artist who's connected to the whole family thing is Marvin Gaye. Uh, Marvin Gaye is actually married to Gordy's sister for quite a while. And then you also have the one, Barry Gordy's pet project, The Supremes, uh, led by Diana Ross. Uh, they're ironically called the No-Hit Supremes until 1964. Uh, they also have Diana Ross, who Gordy is convinced will become the biggest star ever. Uh, he is obsessed with Diana Ross. He goes hard for Diana Ross, like more than any of his other artists. Now, if you go over one more slide... Uh, Gordy is obsessed with respectability as well. Um, he is insistent that his artists are to transcend pop music. They're going to be crossover, mainstream. And this means performing in, quote-unquote, elite venues. Uh, elite venues. There, there's a joke uh, that Gordy says that basically, if you're part of Motown, you are, you are prepared to only perform in two places, the White House and Buckingham Palace. Uh, in reality, this means things like the Ed Sullivan Show and the Copacabana Nightclub. But he's very insistent upon, even though these are you know young black youths, they are able to perform for anybody, uh, any mainstream venue. And this is really seen with his hiring of Maxine Powell. If you look over to the right, there she is, Maxine Powell. Uh, she is an etiquette coach. She is known for being like the etiquette lady of Detroit, you know, like very prim, very proper, like tea, stuff like that. Uh, he hires her to run artist development. Uh, artist development is basically like a beyond a boot camp. Basically, Motown artists are trained on everything. 
like how to talk in interviews, how to perform, how to ad-lib, how to dress and keep their hair neat. Uh, he did not allow afros for the longest time. Nothing was, like, natural, quote unquote. It's like you had to have hair product in. Uh, Motown artists had a script, and you were not to deviate from it. Like, Motown artists had, like, a very, very meticulous... If this is how you perform... Like, the fact that they even rehearsed banter. Like, what you say in between the songs that it's supposed to seem, like, spur of the moment? No, no, no. That was rehearsed. Like, it was beaten in to the Motown artist that this is how you act. Now, there are pluses and minuses to this. There are pluses and minuses to this. Uh, For instance, uh, these are literal kids. Like, these are literal children. You know, not children, but like teenagers coming out of Detroit. And in in short order, they are turned into seasoned pros. Like... You know, Powell, Powell like, was really the big of the etiquette coach. They had also dance instructors. Uh, Motown artists were very, you know, it was strict script, but they were able to go from nothing to, like, seasoned professional very quickly. But there's also some deterrence, uh, mainly when it comes to self-expression. Um, they are not really able to express themselves or talk about hot-button issues. They're not theoretically allowed to be themselves. Uh, they can't really talk about like what's going on with them as a young person from Detroit or what it's like to be black or that sort of thing. In particular, that goes to the civil rights movement. I cannot iterate this enough. Um, Barry Gordy would not allow any talk of the civil rights movement amongst his artists. Like, any sort of stand. Uh, he, he said that basically he wanted people on both sides of the picket line listening to his music. Which is interesting when you think about it. This idea that he wants both, you know, the... African Americans arguing for civil rights and the people arguing for segregation to listen to Motown's things. But he's like, look, I want to make sure that, you know, I do not alienate potential customers. Now, understandably, this frustrated a lot of Motown's artists. A lot of Motown's artists were frustrated by this. Uh, Most notably, his own brother-in-law, Marvin Gaye. Uh, Marvin Gaye did not care for this whatsoever. Uh, I don't have a clip of it. I used to. I couldn't find one. Where basically, for the longest time, uh, Barry Gordy pushed Marvin Gaye to play nightclubs. And I I found a clip of Marvin Gaye singing in a nightclub, and you can tell he hates it. It's funny because, you know, he's still a professional. He's still doing the Motown, like, this is the thing that we rehearsed a million times. It's not just, it's not like he's dead behind the eyes and just doing this, like, you know, oh, by memorization. It's like... It's a sense of loathing almost. Like, he's still being energetic. He's, you know, he's still doing this, but it's just, like, disgust that Marvin Gaye has. Like, ugh, I have to do this. He hates it. He's like, you know, he wants to do this, but he's becoming a bigger and bigger star, and, like, he kind of gets a little resentful of this. Ultimately, uh, Marvin Gaye would record a, quote-unquote, you know, a woke album, basically a more uh, socially conscious album, Basically, he leveraged uh, it against Barry Gordy. Uh, it's called What's Going On, which you might be familiar with. If you look at the first YouTube link, that's What's Going On. Uh, what's Going On is basically talks about the social issues. Gordy doesn't think it's going to be a big hit. It's a bigger hit than you might have expected, though. But basically, in retaliation, not retaliation, but like in response, Gordy's like, okay, cool, you got to record the next album for me, which is What's Going On. Sorry, sorry, not what's going on. Let's get it on, which is all about sex. And it's not woke in the slightest. It's not socially conscious. It's just like, let's get it on. Let's have the sex, that sort of thing. But that's in the early 70s. Now, the thing I really want to talk about, though, kind of the, kind of the, the crux of this whole lecture has to do with Barry Gordy's relationship with Martin Luther King. 
because believe it or not, these have a history together. Uh, the reading selection you're going to read this week is from a manuscript I know from somebody that is writing about this. It talks about the relationship that Barry Gordy has with Martin Luther King, and they are the oddest of couples. Uh, you have never seen a more mismatched pair than Barry Gordy and Martin Luther King Jr. Because they actually have a professionalish relationship. Like, Barry Gordy has business ties with Dr. King, even though Gordy will not speak out about the civil rights movement or directly support Dr. King. Like I said, it's a weird dynamic. It's a dynamic where Gordy is not wanting to say anything about the civil rights movement, but he's willing to try to make money off of one of its leaders. Now, this all kind of starts with the I Have a Dream controversy. The I Have a Dream controversy, which is... Yeesh, this is, this is a fascinating one, how this all gets started. Now, I'm sure you know the I Have a Dream speech, a very famous speech done on the Washington Monument, uh, not the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial during the March on Washington. You know the speech. You, you can't be alive and not know the I Have a Dream speech. Here's what you might not know. That's not the first time that Dr. King had ever given the speech. Uh, it was a... Dr. King, um, great man for many reasons. He wasn't the best, like, off-the-cuff speaker. Uh, he was somebody who needed to have, like, a speech. He liked to prepare his speeches. He liked to, like, you know, kind of be comfortable with it. And so even before the March on Washington, he kind of been workshopping the I Have a Dream speech uh, in various places. And one of the places he does it before the March on Washington is actually he comes to Detroit, and he gives a, he gives a speech uh, that's pretty much a proto-version of the I Have a Dream speech. Now, after the March on Washington, and basically, you know, Martin Luther King is very famous. Uh, he's very well known. People, people want to, you know, listen to him. People, people are interested in maybe buying stuff of him. Gordy decides, you know what? I'm going to capitalize on it. Barry Gordy finds a bootleg of the "I Have a Dream" speech that Gordy that that sorry that King gave in Detroit. Let me let me I, I messed it up a little bit. Barry Gordy, head of Motown finds a bootleg that Dr. Martin Luther King did of the I Have a Dream speech, a proto-version of it, when it was in a new De whenever he was in Detroit. It's not the same one as the March on Washington. But basically, Gordy releases this bootleg on the Motown label. He basically buys the bootleg and starts releasing it, trying to cash in on the Martin Luther King moment, this idea that he's very popular, the speech is very famous. Uh, when the Southern Christian Leadership Council hears about this, they send a cease and desist letter for fairly obvious reasons. Uh, Gordy, who either doesn't have the money or not really willing to spend the money, actually appeals to Dr. King's sense of racial sol solidarity. Uh, there are letters. I, I didn't give them to you, but you'll, you'll read about that in the, uh, in, in the reading. Uh, basically, where he like directly appears to the sense of racial solidarity. He's like, look, I'm, I'm a black man too, trying to do my best for the race. Um, eventually, King does consent, and the duo does sign a very odd agreement. Uh, the reading's going to talk about that odd agreement later on, but basically, um, despite the fact that Gordy bootlegged the I Have a Dream speech, a version of it, uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Council agrees to maybe do it later. As you go for one picture... You'll see, like, basically Barry Gordy handing Dr. King a, a, a copy of one of King's later speeches that was delivered on Motown. The reason I love this first picture is because Dr. King does not look amused at all. He's like, okay, wh who's this guy? What's he doing? 
if you go over one more slide, you'll see the the picture that actually was presented in um, in Jet Magazine. You'll see that from Jet Magazine where Dr. King's actually smiling. But apparently his initial reaction was like, I, I don't know this guy. Uh, they have a very weird relationship by any case. Uh, for instance, whenever um, Barry Gore, whenever Dr. King, I should say, tells Gordy, um, hey, my, my share of the profits, uh, give it to the Southern Christian Leadership Council because I, nobody can think I'm making money off this movement. The idea being like, you know, if people thought that Dr. King was making money off the civil rights movement, uh, it would make him be viewed as a fraud. And apparently Gordy could not believe that. Uh, you know, when you talk to Gordy, he's like, yeah, I, I couldn't believe it. He's like, I was like, I even told him, I was like, you have children, right? You, you, you have a wife who needs to eat. You know, you made, you're making money. You should keep the money. And like for the longest time, Barry Gordy could not comprehend that Dr. King would not want to try to make money off of his speeches. But even though, if you go over one more slide, uh, even though uh, he's got a relationship with Dr. King, Gordy is still unwilling to let his artists speak publicly. And this becomes even more interesting in 1967 when there is a riot, a large riot. The Detroit riot happens literal blocks away from Motown, like literal blocks away from the Motown studios, like not even four or five blocks away. There's a large, one of the largest riots in the 20th century in Detroit, um, racial reasons, um, long history in Detroit of, oh, resentment about policing and things like that. Um, but basically, even though this is literal blocks away from the Motown studios, Gordy is not letting his artist make public statements, like, at all. Uh, if you go over one side, you're going to see pictures of the Detroit riot. If you go one more side, you'll see, like, pictures of it going on. Uh, instead, instead of letting the artist make public statements about the riots, um, he works with the city of Detroit's government uh, the next year in the quote-unquote Detroit is Happening campaign. Uh, which is basically the lamest lame of a thing ever. Like, it is the most neutered, not making any strong statements about anything campaign of all time. Uh, basically, it's, hey, Detroit's a fun place to be. Uh, they release a version of the, of the uh, Supreme Song, The Happening, that talks about how Detroit is happening. Uh, the worst song possibly ever released uh, was Smokey Robertson's I Care About Detroit, which is, like, the most sugary, sweet, saccharine, I care about Detroit. It's it's so lame, like, for this sort of thing. Now, weirdly enough, the only time that Barry Gordy allows his artists to be really affiliated with the Civil Rights Movement is actually at Dr. King's funeral. Ironically, it's when Dr. King is killed in the late 60s, in 1968, that Barry Gordy lets Motown artists play and publicly support the Civil Rights Movement. This is in the late 60s. Like, this is well whenever the movement is in the black power phase. And people like Dr. King were looked upon as dinosaurs. It's pretty much only when Gordy whenever uh, Dr. King dies, that Gordy's like, okay, yeah, we're with the civil rights movement. But, like, when Dr. King dies, he was not viewed as a very radical person by any stretch. Um, especially within the civil rights movement. Now, later on, Gordy tries to push the idea that he was uh, behind the movement 100%. Um, really big in, in Gordy's legacy, like this idea that, you know, Dr. King was a big idea for him. Basically, whenever Dr. King became like Dr. King, you know, Mr. I get a holiday about me, Dr. King, like major figurehead in the civil rights movement, that's when Gordy says, oh, no, 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 I was behind him 100%. Uh, for instance, 
Uh, there, there's a story that uh, Stevie Wonder's song "Happy Birthday" uh, caused Dr. King's birthday to become a national holiday. Um, uh, that's that's a myth, <laughs> but that's something that Barry basically. If you watch the Barry Gordy recently made a Motown Broadway show, and it kind of brings up, kind of reaffirms this idea that uh, oh no no no, it's Stevie wants Dr. King's birthday to become Happy Birthday. Look, the song didn't hurt by any stretch, but. The mechanization to make uh, Martin Luther King Day a holiday was well already in place whenever the song came out. Um, I'm going to be like condensing immensely right now because we are kind of running out of time, but kind of getting to the mythology of Motown. Um, in the, once we get into the closing part of the 60s, uh, I mentioned earlier that Barry Gordy is obsessed with Diana Ross. It goes even more obsessed into Diana Ross. He really wants to turn her into a solo star. Um, it kind of works. I mean, she's you know, not the... Well, not the smallest name in the world, I mean, but he, like, you know, starts making movies and stuff to, like, really try to make Diana Ross into a star. Um, ooh, I'll spill some tea, though, if you want. It's also in this time when he gets her pregnant. Um, the, 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 the father of Diana Ross's first child is Barry Gordy. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's something that's, uh, it's fairly well known now. It's not the, it's not Tracy Ellis Ross, it's not the one from Blackish, but her older sister is actually Barry Gordy's daughter. Um, like I said, Barry Gordy becomes obsessed with making movies. Uh, eventually, he buys a mansion in Los Angeles, actually weirdly close to the Playboy Mansion. Uh, he even moves it to Los Angeles. Eventually, he moves the label to Los Angeles in 1972. Uh, they had moved out of the Hitsville house in 1967. Even by the 60s, they were gotten too big for that house, but they had kept it as a museum and a spiritual home. However, with Motown West, it's like this idea that you know, things are going to be different. He's going even bigger. Uh, the first thing he does after going to Los Angeles he, is he sends for five brothers from Gary, Indiana. Um, that'd be the Jackson Five, who are ironically, like, the best representation of the Motown machine and one of the last. <laughs> they're kind of like, they, they're the, the the mold breaker that kind of proves how great the mold worked. Um, actually, part of his marketing for the Jackson Five has them being discovered by Diana Ross. So go figure. Uh, they were crazy big, crazy big. Uh, they did break some of the old Motown rules. Uh, for instance, they had afros. They had afros, but they were so sanitized and bubblegum uh, that they, 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 they were not seen as radical by the time it came out. By the time we get into the 70s, uh, Motown had become seen as passe, weirdly enough. Pretty much Motown's moment was very tied to the 60s, which we'll talk about at the very end. Uh, become, Gordy becomes less and less directly involved. Uh, he becomes more interested in, in not doing that. Uh, he pretty much given up all control of Motown by the time we get to the 80s. Um, the 1983 Motown 25 special, it's their 25th anniversary special, was supposed to be a revitalization of the label. Basically kind of relaunching. Uh, it became more of like a museum of the past because all the biggest acts had been um, signed to other labels. And the biggest star of the moment was actually Michael Jackson. If you click on the YouTube video, you'll see Jackson 5 set of the Motown 25 special, where Michael Jackson comes out, performs some of his old Jackson 5 hits with his brothers, but then the people go really nuts for him doing his solo stuff. Uh, this performance is also very important, because this is the first time that Michael Jackson does the moonwalk in public. Um, Ask me some other time about the moonwalk. I weirdly know too much about the history of the moonwalk, but Michael Jackson was not the first. Uh, the, the Motown 25 moment was kind of seen as the, the last gasp for Gordy. 
1988, he sells his stake in the company uh, to MCA, who actually keeps it running a while for the late 90s. It's actually theoretically still around as a subsidiary of Universal. Um, weirdly, there's a lot of like rap labels that are part of Motown now, so go figure. Um, I say it's ironic because Gordy found a formula he thought could work, and he never deviated from it. Uh, when new genres like came out, he stayed very far away. So, for instance, like funk, disco, especially rap. If 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 Gordy was more aware of what was going on in modern music, he could have been on the ground floor of rap. Uh, they all had like really big chances to be signed by Motown, but he really wants rap to stay away. And the thing I want you to think about it for is this final thought. Uh, Gordy's legacy is very much linked to the 60s since that's that's when he was the most relevant and to be fair he was pretty successful I mean remember Motown has tremendous crossover appeal Uh, about 70% of Motown's customers were white that's pretty much keeping into the demographics of the United States in that time period Uh, African Americans make up anywhere from 13 to 15% of the US population depending on the year Uh, sorry depending on the time Mm -hmm. in history uh, much more are white, and pretty much by appealing to white Americans, uh, he's able to become very financially successful in making this kind of version of black respectability, even though he's not tied to the civil rights movement in the slightest, except for a weird relationship with Dr. King. And that's where we're kind of going to end it today. It's a little bit shorter than normal, but like this is very much tied to a certain point in time. Motown in general is tied to a certain point in time, and it's also very strongly tied to respectability. So when we discuss this, I want you to talk about this idea of respectability. Particularly as we get later into like the civil rights movement and counterculture, disrespectability becomes seen as the ideal. But just talk about this idea of respectability. And for that, Dr. Tully, History 302, have a great day.